The reading this evening is on page 56, and it's from Genesis. We start at verse 33, and then go through to Genesis 50 to the end, verse 26. So, starting at Genesis 49, verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up onto his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Cana. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor at Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor at Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Miseram. So Jacob's son did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Cana and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamer, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I am, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. 
but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt, along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, and also the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. But a preliminary question, first of all. A lot of the Old Testament is pretty awful stuff, really, when you consider it, and this section is no exception, though it's perhaps not quite the worst. In this section of Genesis, uh, which is focused on God working out his plans and purposes through these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, and their pretty dysfunctional families... It's not a case of happy, monogamous marriages, lots of happy, harmonious families, all doing what God intended for them, and a wonderfully great outcome. Here we read of polygamy, of sex with slave girls, sex with one's daughter-in-law while she is uh, disguised as a prostitute. There's people trafficking and enslavement. There's deceit towards one's father, even though you're aware of the complete and utter grief it causes him. And there's the rape of one's sister and the natural anger against the offender. But that morphs into actually a massacre, not only of him, but of um, all his mates. This is not a picture of happy families. This is a picture of pretty hurtful families. So why bother to read this stuff? You know, how is it going to be of any use to me as I try and understand life and I try and work out how to live it? Well, the simple answer as to why to read it is simply because Jesus read it. In fact, he submitted to its authority and he used it to both understand what God was up to and what God's grand plan was and to work out his own part in fulfilling God's grand plan. Now Jesus was both human and divine. As divine, he would have worked out this grand plan, we're told, long before the creation of the universe. But as a human being, he didn't, as it were, come down as a kind of... you know, as a baby, and uh, somehow or other at nine months, you know, he knew exactly what he was supposed to be doing in life. No, being fully human as well as divine meant, of course, he had to go through all the stages of child development that we do. And he couldn't think like the Bible thinks until, of course, he'd got himself a vocabulary and he could read the Bible and understand what it was that he was supposed to do. 
That's how he operated. And vital to that is understanding how you are properly to uh, read the Bible. We read it because Jesus endorses the authority of the Old Testament. Of course, he doesn't condone all the kind of dreadful things I've just already flagged up. But where it's uh, clear that it has God's endorsement, he's committed to following it. He says, it stands written, or what does Scripture say? And that's determinative for him. So that's why we read it, but how do we read it? One of the worst ways of reading Scripture is to allegorise it. Allegorising is finding hidden Christian meaning in the text that was not in the mind of the original author. And what you think you find is never mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, but rather is imposed on it by us, by vivid imagination. So the life of Joseph, for example, um, as some historic commentators have used allegory to try and work out what this story is about, is Joseph is a type of Jesus. So both Joseph and Jesus were rejected by their own. Both suffered injustices, both both endured imprisonment, both were resurrected in a sense, one from literal imprisonment and one from if you like, more symbolic, um, well, a different kind of imprisonment in terms of death and being resurrected. Both were humiliated, uh, but eventually exalted. And just as those who caused his suffering go to him in their time of need, and he both feeds them so they live and forgives them so they live in peace, so too we turn to him for eternal life and find forgiveness and live in peace and harmony with him forever. Now, of course, there are incidental points of correspondence between these two lives, the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. You'd see that, actually, in a number of Old Testament characters. But this is not how to read the Bible. It's not what the author of Moses had in his mind when God inspired him to write up the story of the life of Joseph. Allegorizing is ingenious, but it is incredibly arbitrary. And it's not how the Old Testament understands itself, and there's no hint of it in the scriptures. So we must reject all allegorization, which scripture does not specifically authorise. Now what we have to do is to discover what the reformers called the plain meaning of scripture. So some wrong allegorising of scripture would be, for example, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, which its plain meaning is is really how the lover and his beloved are communicating with each other. But if you allegorise it, you turn it into the relationship of Christ and the church, which is not what Solomon had in mind. Or in the New Testament, the misinterpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan is a classic mistake by origin of allegorization. So the man who's robbed is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world, the priest is the law, the Samaritan is Christ, the donkey is Christ's physical body which bears the burden of the wounded man whose wounds are sins, the inn is the church and the two denarii are the two sacraments of baptism and uh, holy communion, in case you hadn't worked that out from reading it. And the Samaritan passage, um, in the, and the Samaritan's uh, 
promise to return is a promise of the second coming. Now, of course, what's said in the interpretation is actually true, but it is not derived from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah, there is symbolism in Scripture. There's quite a lot of it, but it usually tells you when it is. So, for example, in the Last Supper, when Jesus is here and the bread's on the table and he picks up the bread and says, this is my body, he is clearly speaking symbolically. We would say, this represents my body. Allegory is different from symbolism because it sets out to find hidden meaning which wasn't there in the mind of the author in just about every line of scripture. It's like reading some kind of esoteric code book and that's not how it is. God has revealed himself in plain language, rationally to us. So, how to read the story of Joseph? Well, there are three ways of looking at the story of Joseph. There's historical, there's the providential, and there's the moral. And there are three lessons we take away. They each provide us with a good insight and understanding of God at work. So, The first is historical. We find the events of Joseph's life in history. The Christian faith is a historical religion. We do not have to speculate about what is in the unseen world because the God of the unseen has been seen in action in our world. And we see him achieve various things and say through people various things and we have the chance to check it out. For biblical Christians, God is the God of history. We might distinguish it in two distinct spheres. There's the history of the world, what we might call secular, and there's the history of salvation, which we might call sacred. But all empires that have ever existed are ultimately always under the control of the God of history. And woven into the history of the world is the history of salvation. And in the Old Testament, we have both histories. The empires of Egypt and others all operate under God's authority of the one who is called the Most High God who rules the lives of men. All is under the sovereignty of God. Salvation history, God's plan of salvation, working out his promise through this family of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, A promise that we are aware comes comes to fruition and fulfilment in the arrival of a descendant of theirs, the Lord Jesus, and the salvation of the world is achieved and made possible. Now the famine in the ancient Near East had arrived and Jacob and his family are starving. What is going to happen to the salvation history and the promise of Abraham if this little embryonic people of God, which numbers at this point no more than 70 people, is likely to be wiped out by this famine. Well, that's the end of it. If they go, God hasn't kept his promise. So 42 verse 2, when Jacob heard there was grain to buy in Egypt, he said to his sons, go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. 
And then later, when Joseph had revealed himself to them in Genesis 45, 10 and 11, he says, You shall live in the land, of, in the region of Goshen. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. See, if they don't take up the offer, they're very likely going to die out. Now, at that moment of uh, revelation, when uh, 45.1, Joseph could no longer contain himself, he wept and said to his brothers, I am Joseph, I am your brother. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you, verse 5. Or in verse 7 of 45, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You see, God had a very specific concern to save the world by preserving a small remnant of his covenant people so that his plans of salvation could continue until it was fulfilled. God rules over all of history so that his plans for our salvation could come about. That's the first lesson. He is ultimately in charge of all that goes on. Now the second of the three lessons is in providence. Although Joseph was rather up himself as a 17-year-old, as the favourite of his father Jacob, there's no doubt that for the next 13 years he suffered unjustly. He was people trafficked. He was enslaved. He was falsely accused and ended up in prison without trial. Although he helped fellow prisoners, one of the key ones who got reinstated forgot all about him, even though he promised not to. None of that was fair. Nonetheless, through all those unfair things, all those injustices, God was still working his purposes out. Being sold into slavery in Egypt meant Joseph was in the one place at the right time, the crucial time, when his family was going to need food in order to survive. Being falsely accused meant he was in a prison where he met prisoners who would give him ultimately access to Pharaoh and his God-given ability to interpret dreams, which none of the magi, the wise men of Pharaoh's court, could manage to understand, and his management traineeship that he'd kind of learnt from Potiphar's household that he was put in charge of, or the prison where the governor put him in charge of the prison. All that also impressed Pharaoh so much that he appointed him Grand Vizier, the guy in charge after him. And he was in a position to make plans for this famine that was going to come and so enable his family from Canaan to survive. Even through these injustices, God was working his purposes out. Even these dark threads were woven by God through his tapestry of purposes. And Joseph had been sold to the right household in Egypt at the right time. Joseph was in prison with heads of department from Pharaoh's household and he had impressed at the time when no one else could understand what was going on. That was his big break and God enabled him 
to be, to occupy a position where he could save the people of God through whom God's plan of salvation would now go forward. And Joseph says so in 45, 5-7, he said, God sent me ahead of you. Well, actually, God did nothing of the kind. It was the cruelty and the ruthlessness of his brothers that sent him there, not God. Yet Joseph can say, God sent me ahead of you. 45.8, it was not you, his brothers, who sent me here, but God. Or in 50.20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what was now being done, the saving of many lives. So you have there two intentions, human and divine. The human intention is to harm Joseph. God's intention is to bring good out of the evil that happens. And there are two sendings, human and divine. Human, his brothers sell him into slavery, and the divine, God sending him to Egypt. And they are not two alternative explanations of the same events. God sent me, you sent me, God intended good, you intended harm. They're not alternatives, they are concurrent. Both are true, and both are true at the same time. Even though the evil intentions of the brothers, through the evil intention of the brothers, God was working in pursuit of good. Even through the wicked actions of others, God was working things out. So Joseph would be in a position to save lives and to keep the grand plan of salvation on track. It's not an exaggeration to say that in every single situation in the world, in every single situation in which we find ourselves, there is a divine intention and there is a human intention. There is good and there is evil. There is what men and women are doing and there is what God is doing through them. So we have concurrent providential action in a very clear, which is a very clear lesson from this story of Joseph. It's a lesson which we mustn't misunderstand what's happening. This does not exonerate the evil actions of human beings. The brothers of Joseph were still guilty, although God was active through them. They were still guilty. They chose to do it. They were not aware at all that they were actually fulfilling a much bigger picture. Nor does it make God responsible for their evil. God is only responsible for good. He turns evil situations into good. Nor did Joseph understand what was happening at the time. In the cistern, he cried out to his brothers to let him out. He thought he was going to be left there to die, first of all. But they didn't listen to him. He had no knowledge at all that he would one day be delivered from slavery and imprisonment. And he just thought that was his life's fate. When he was suffering all that unfairness, he didn't know that he was going to one day be released and become the second most important person in Egypt and would thereby preserve the people of God from famine so they would live 
and be able to, go, to further God's great plan. And the same is true for us. You see, God was overruling evil to serve his own good purposes. Joseph came to see all that later. So should we, as we look back. Either in this life, we have the opportunity to look back at Scripture and we see how God worked it all out despite the frustrations of sinful human beings. And sometimes also, if we live long enough, that we're able to look back and we see things which might have happened to us which were injustices and were unfair, and yet somehow or other through that, God has worked them to our benefit and for contributing, no doubt, to our own personal salvation. You see, Romans 8.28 sums it all up. And we know that in all things, God works for good, for the good of those who love him. God works for good in all circumstances, even evil ones, for those who love him. So we've seen then two, lesson of history and the lesson in providence. And finally, there's a lesson in forgiveness. How would you react if you were in Joseph's shoes? He's seen his brothers. They are really at his mercy, and yet they don't know who he is. He remembers that they had initially sought to kill him. Then they put him in a cistern, so at least whilst they didn't actually directly kill him, they indirectly were going to. And then one of them thinks, let's sell him as a slave. And he recognises them, but they don't recognise him. What are you going to do as you think back over those 17 years when you were in slave or in prison and all that you suffered and you missed out on? How would you have reacted? Well, there are two extreme reactions which Joseph actually avoids. Perhaps surprisingly, he is not out for revenge. He doesn't think he suffered at their hands. Now it's time for them to suffer at his. He does not recall how they refused to listen to his appeals. And so now he might understandably refuse to listen to theirs. In fact, we read in 45.3 that they were terrified when he revealed himself to them. They must have thought, well, you can't really say it, can you, in church? But they must have, uh, they must have thought. And, uh, as they say, revenge is sweet to fallen human nature. And Joseph had the power to utterly humiliate them, hurt them, even torture them for what he, they had done to him. But he doesn't. The second extreme reaction he could have gone for was cheap forgiveness. He could have made light. After all, from the age of 30, he did pretty well. So, don't don't matter. Never mind. Let's not mention it. Let's forget it. He could have just overlooked their evil. But, of course, evil does matter. In God's eyes, sin does matter. Because it's rebellion against him. It's ruinous of others, and it's damaging to ourselves. Joseph, though, goes to neither extreme. He doesn't go in for revenge, and he doesn't go in for cheap grace. Instead, he puts there what he begins to see might be repentance to the test. 
he concocts an elaborate scenario in order to do so. In chapters 43 and 44, he engineered circumstances to get his younger brother, Benjamin, the only one of the brothers that has the same parentage as Joseph, to come to Egypt. And this 17-year-old is brought before him and he is put at risk. Before they were about to set off back to Canaan, Joseph got his, um, his men to put the money back in the sacks and also put the prized silver cup from Pharaoh's kitchen uh, in Benjamin's sack. And then, of course, they're captured. And uh, Joseph says, the rest of the brothers can go home Uh, but Ben would have to stay as his slave. This is before he's revealed himself to them. It was a dramatic moment. Joseph's brothers had sacrificed him. Would they now sacrifice Ben? Would they be as heartless to Ben as they'd been as heartless to Joseph? Well, Judah and the others had been involved in selling Joseph into slavery and in deceiving their father by telling him that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Now we know from 42, 38 that the loss of Joseph to Jacob was absolutely soul-destroying because they report when uh, Joseph wants Benjamin to come from Canaan, they, they, they have an insight into how grievous this is going to be for their father. That if he was to lose Benjamin like he'd lost Joseph, this would kill him. This would be the end of him. He'd just shrivel up and die. They understood that. They had gained insight into the pain that they had caused their father. So... What happens then is that Judah um, and my handwriting is not so brilliant. But, um, <laughs> um, so let's have a verse from the Bible and I'll get my brain on track. Surely uh, we are being punished. See, when, uh, when, they, when, they, when, yes, right, when, um, when Joseph um, originally asked for Ben, they think to themselves, probably with an expletive, surely we are being punished because of our brother. They recalled how Joseph had pleaded with them and they'd not listen. And Reuben says, now we must give an account for his blood. It's true, isn't it, how sins from the past, which lay unrepented of, can come back and haunt us. We might say, convict us. And that can happen many, many years after such things have happened, as in this case. They, of course, were speaking in Hebrew to one another in front of Joseph. They don't realise who he is. They don't realise he can understand every word they are saying. He wants to find out whether this kind of talk of remorse is in fact genuine repentance. 
And so Judah pleads for Benjamin's life, and he actually volunteers to be held in Benjamin's place. If only Benjamin will be freed. Now this is evidence, marvellous evidence, of the transformation that has taken place in this guy's life. He was one of the worst of the brothers. You can read about them, I think it's in chapter 49, what different ones of them had got up to. But he is now prepared not to sacrifice his brother to go home and go free, but to sacrifice himself for his little brother. That is a change from his previous callous, hard-hearted ruthlessness. It was evidence of genuine repentance. He'd passed Joseph's test, and it's at that point that Joseph made himself known to the brothers, and he forgave them, and he evidenced it by embracing them. And then they talked. And Jesus taught much the same. When someone sins against us, what are we to do? Jesus avoids the two extremes of personal revenge or cheap forgiveness. In Matthew 5, Jesus says we are not to retaliate. The Apostle Paul says that we are not to repay evil for evil because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, he says. If your brother sins... Luke 17, 34, what does Jesus say? Well, he doesn't say, if your brother sins, forgive him. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So how can we forgive people who don't acknowledge their need of forgiveness? Who don't confess that they've done something wrong? So if they don't ask for forgiveness, we can't forgive them. Now again, it's very important not to misunderstand this. Unconditional love is required of Christians to love even our enemies, those who have never repented of what they've actually done to us, who've never asked for our forgiveness. We are to demonstrate unconditional love towards them but not unconditional forgiveness. God loves unconditionally. God does not forgive unconditionally. He can only forgive those who recognise their sin and repent. His forgiveness is very costly. It took his son to the cross, where love and justice are reconciled for it to be possible. And he does not forgive us now until we repent of our sin and believe that Jesus has effectively paid the price for our sins to be forgiven. In the face of those who have gravely wronged us, we are to have no animosity, no spite, no desire for revenge. We are to have a forgiving spirit, a longing to forgive, as soon as the person repents and asks for forgiveness. But a forgiving spirit is different from granting forgiveness to someone who has never acknowledged that, they are, that they've done any wrong. Because you cannot forgive such a person because there is nothing to forgive. 
Now we can lead them back, nor can we lead them back into fellowship with ourselves, which is, of course, the object of forgiveness. True forgiveness is costly and conditional. It's not cheap. And Joseph is an outstanding biblical example of demonstrating it. So you see, there are great treasures in the Old Testament. If only we know how to dig for them. We must not isolate texts from their context. We need to know the full picture. We couldn't know how Joseph could forgive his brothers unless we know how Jesus said, what Jesus said about forgiveness in Luke 17. We can't understand providence in the case of Joseph unless we understand Romans 8.28. We need to know the full context. We mustn't go in for proof texting nice little one-liners isolated from their context, whether that's a paragraph, a book of the Bible, or the whole Bible. We mustn't go in for kind of random dipping into the Bible to see what it might sort of say for us. Worst of all, you mustn't buy something called Daily Light, which has nice verses out of context. They mean something completely different when you do that. It's not a good idea. And we mustn't go in for impressionistic readings where... Our thoughts go on a kind of unwarranted flight of fancy. No, God has given us a coherent revelation. We need to absorb it all and understand the obscure passages in the light of the clearer passages. Now, God is faithful to his promises in biblical history. God's providence is God's working for good, even in situations which are evil. And we learn of God's forgiveness as he reconciles love and justice at the cross. And we continue to act in love and justice today. And as we increase in our knowledge of God through his word, that prompts us to worship God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the life of Joseph, we are grateful how we can see that you are the God of history and that you preserve your people so that you can fulfill your promises and achieve your plans and purposes for the salvation of the world. And we thank you that we can learn from your acts of providence, where you are working good through evil. And we thank you that you have taught us about forgiveness, which is costly and not cheap. May we have the grace and resources to think this out and live it out as well. Amen.